0: I want to first start by thinking, Dr. Uh, Ebony zamani Gallagher uh, for extending the invitation for me to be a part of the Dean's Diversity Lecture Series at UIUC. Um, I'm really humbled to be a part of this important series and to follow um, in a list of esteemed critical scholars who've been to campus, particularly folks that started this series last year. Um, so in the in the grand scheme of, of careers, mine is really in its infancy, and I really appreciate the trust and belief in my work and thinking um, that I'm doing uh, to be able to come and speak with you today. And I also want to recognize too, so this is the last talk that I'm giving this fall, um, and just want to thank my home department at NIU, the Department of Counseling Adult and Higher Education, as well as the students alongside whom I've had the pleasure of learning this semester. Um, This is really the first semester that I've gotten to travel quite a bit to talk about um, my book, Trans in College, and um, I know that my absence from campus hasn't really been probably ideal, and that colleagues and students would probably like me to be around a little bit more, but I appreciate their grace and patience as I've been traveling around and talking about the book. Um, And I hope that someday maybe I can be as generous and patient with them as as they've been with me. So thanks to to folks at NIU. Um, And I also want to thank Dr. D.L. Stewart just publicly. Um, So D.L. Stewart is one of the people who came here last year to speak in this series, and also D.L. helped me workshop some of the ideas that I'll be sharing with you today, which are brand new for me.
1: everyone. So. What starts here changes the world. Well, I've got to admit, I kind of like it. What starts here changes the world. We are the music makers, and we are the dreamers of dreams. The average American will meet 10,000 people in their lifetime. I was handcuffed to another man from another tribe whose language I did not speak. Don't think. But if every one of you changed the lives of just 10 people, and each one of those people changed the lives of another 10 people, and another 10. We did not know each other, and we could not speak to each other, because if we could have spoken to each other, we might have been able to figure out what was happening to us. To every politician who is taking donations from the NRA, Shame on I believe them when they said they were sleeping on concrete floors. I believe them. Children being separated from their parents So what starts here can indeed change the world. But the question is, what will the world look like after you change it? Welcome to Public Access America. Make a stand. I know I did.
0: Thank you very much. And may God bless us. And may God bless us. um, Okay. So want to start first um, and do some thanks, but also recognize that we're currently on occupied territory, um, specifically the lands of the Haudenosaunee and Miami tribes, um, and that- recognizing the fact that we're on stolen land and that we as an educational community continue to benefit from our ongoing complicity with settler colonization. Um, And this is important for a couple of reasons. Um, The first is that um, as Dr. Uh, Zamani Gallagher mentioned, uh, my work focuses on transgender people um, and the oppressive institutional climates that we as trans folks continue to face. Um, These climates and the systematic transgender oppression that is omnipresent on college campuses um, are only the way they are because of colonization. So we must never forget that the current gender binary discourse that ensnares all of our college environments um, and continues to be violently enforced is a direct result, right, of settler colonization. Um, Second, um, and as a direct connection between colonization and the effects of gender binary discourse, um, we really need to imagine new, liberatory, uh, post-secondary environments that seek to liberate all marginalized populations. Um, I'll say this a couple of times throughout this talk, um, but quite simply, uh, none of us is free until all of us are free. Um, and so I want to spend some time talking about new possibilities and dreaming um, what we could have, right, in, in educational context, both K, both, both K through 12 as well as post-secondary contexts. And finally, um, if for no other reason, right, to mention colonization and the, the realities of us being on occupied territory, we need to remember that we have multiple identities, right, and so there are indigenous two-spirit folks. Um, and so... Um, our our realities are already intertwined and we need to really be thinking about the worlds that we need and deserve from kind of an intersectional perspective. So in thinking about my remarks for today, um, I wanted to do maybe a brief tour through history. Um, years and years ago, when I was an undergrad student, um, I started out my college career actually as um, a history major. It then turned into a minor. Um, but I, I often find that looking backwards to move forwards is, is really important. Um, and you know, we're living in this current moment um, and living in a current sociopolitical climate Um, in which we are, as Naomi Klein discussed in her new book, No Is Not Enough, quite intentionally kept in a state of confusion and discombobulation, Um, and so we really can't forget our history as we move forward. Okay, so... We're gonna start with some history, right? Um, and I'll kind of unfold this agenda as we, as we keep going. So it was James Baldwin who stated, uh, and I quote, the great force of history comes from the fact that we carry it with us, are unconsciously controlled by it in many ways, and history is literally present in all that we do. Yes, indeed, history is literally present in all that we do. And so we must not think of our history, be it recent or far removed, as not mattering in assessing and finding ways to respond to our current climate. So um, I want to start my talk then by remembering back to the Obama presidency. Remember that moment when Obama was president? There he is. And I want to talk about the rather odd kind of back-and-forth relationship that Obama had with the LGBTQ community, and specifically with the transgender community. You know, in looking back on the Obama presidency, Amanda Turkle of the Huffington Post wrote, quote, No president in history has done more for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender and queer rights than Barack Obama. This stance, shared by many people, is in large part due to his administration's decision to not defend the Defense of Marriage Act, which was put in place by a democratic administration, right, which is important to remember, and we'll talk about that later, as well as his administration paving the way for transgender people to serve in the military. Now, holding aside for a moment the contestations around why transgender people would ever want to be a part of furthering US imperialism, I argue that the Obama administration actually did not do all that much for transgender people. In fact, I'll show that while Obama is heralded as ushering in so called historic progress for LGBTQ people, remember, he was the first president um, who openly discussed queer people during his State of the Union addresses, right? And that was something that was often written about as a sign of his per- progress. Um, he actually was never a firm believer in forwarding anything more than symbolic acceptance for transgender people. Furthermore, I assert that far from being an aberration, Obama was merely following the quote unquote, liberal playbook when it comes to the transgender population. For example, we must never forget that the only reason we do not have a comprehensive federal Employment Non-Discrimination Act that includes transgender people is because of Barney Frank a gay former congressman from Massachusetts who yanked language related to transgender people out of the ENDA bill when he proposed it a decade ago. Right, The bill has been introduced in almost every Congress since 1994, but had never included transgender people prior to Frank's suggesting the community be included. And then he was the one that, that pulled language out of the bill at the 11th hour. And he pulled that language out of the bill because he worried the bill would not pass. And in a cruel twist of irony, the bill still didn't pass, right? So Barney Frank's move then is an indicator of what has happened time and again through history with the place of transgender people within the progressive and so-called liberal base, right? We as a community, as a transgender population have become a wedge political issue, So it seems important for me to talk a little bit about what wedge politics are and how and why trans people continue to be positioned as a wedge. Because although Obama was liberal, and although the Democratic Party has long considered themselves on the side of the downtrodden and the marginalized, it is clear that there are limits to the liberal base in the United States, and one of those limits is the transgender population, so simply put, uh, a wedge political issue is an issue that is understood to be divisive or controversial and splits apart a political group. Wedge political issues can re- wedge politics rather can relate to issues as has been the case for the ongoing political rhetoric around being quote-unquote tough on crime. So, for example, whereas the Democratic Party has often been framed as a party who is weak on crime, their response has been a deep schism in the party about how to respond to such claims, right? So on the one hand, Democratic leaders have been incredibly harsh in their furthering of draconian policies. So we can think about President Clinton's omnibus crime bill, which dramatically increased the scope and reach of the prison industrial complex. And additionally, we can think about President Obama's response to being weak on crime Uh, particularly being the president who oversaw the deportation of more migrants than all previous presidents in the 20th century combined. So in this sense, the issue of safety has been a wedge that's divided the progressive and moderate factions of the liberal political base. Moreover, conservative politicians have wielded this knowledge to their advantage, continuing to assert that Democrats have been soft on crime, which only requires Democrats to double down and further policies that hurt, harm, and violate many for whom they purport to represent. So let me be incredibly clear. I am no fan of the neoconservative base or the current authoritarian regime that has a political vice grip over this country. Absolutely not a fan of these folks, right? Um, I'm also quite well aware that they're not fans of mine. You know, as an openly transgender person and one who continues to be outspoken in my distaste for the rights vitriolic attacks against my community, I have been and, and likely will continue to be the subject of trolling by conservative media outlets, heralding themselves to be legitimate news sources. However, in a moment when the vitriolic rancor and attacks against those who are the most vulnerable among us increase literally by the tweet... It is sometimes romantic to look at back at history with rose-colored glasses, and we often want to think back to the quote-unquote good old days, when the Democrats ran the show and people cared about each other, right? However, what this uh, what this is is overly simplistic, not to mention highly ahistorical, um, and this view belies the fact that there were not, that things weren't actually much better, um, but that we just lived with, let's say, a kinder, gentler form of oppression, right? So put another way, I argue that previous democratic administrations did not really care that, that much more about transgender people, um, but they were just better at hiding their contempt, most often by wrapping it Uh, with a thin veil of support for political issues that benefited the white, able-bodied, upwardly mobile, gay, and lesbian base that turned out in droves to help fund political campaigns. In fact, the very reason why transgender people were left behind by the Democratic base and and why we've continued to be left behind is because trans people represent one of the latest wedge political issues— so for for while it seems as though liberal candidates and politicians are finally willing to assert that we should be free to love who and how we want, these same candidates are actually quite fearful to assert that we should be free to determine and live in our genders beyond the strict confines of biological essentialism and medical pathologization. So at worst, so-called liberal politicians have shown an outward disdain for transgender people, posing us as a disposable people while at best we have seen our lives tokenized for the furthering of a political base that continues to be dismissive of the types of redistribution necessary to increase, to create rather increased life chances for those most on the margins. For example, it was Obama who tossed Genesette Gutierrez out of the White House for calling out his record as the deporter-in-chief and its effects on undocumented transgender people. Additionally, it was Obama who ensured that all federal agencies could no longer discriminate against transgender people through employment. However, he did nothing to push forward comprehensive employment non-discrimination through private industry as doing so may, may have been seen as too progressive or too radical and would have disrupted the political financial contributions that have become all but necessary to secure votes and elections. So while Obama and some on the political left have taken some good and necessary steps towards transgender rights, these have been horribly insufficient, right? So necessary and yet insufficient at redistributing life chances for those who are most on the margins in the United States, including transgender people and especially transgender people of color. Now, As I've previously mentioned, the political right knows that transgender people have become a political wedge issue for the left and are using this fact to their advantage. So, for example, with every late-night tweet the current president fires off about transgender people, those on the political left now have a decision to make, right? Will they continue to advocate for the same surface-level platitudes they have in the past, hoping it will be sufficient to keep both their donors and voters happy? or will they actually harness a more radical politic that may recapture many who have become disenfranchised with the version of softer, gentler oppression the political left currently touts? Because let's be very clear, we know a deep division has grown ever wider on the political left between those organizing and activating for true progressive change and those who are moderate to the point where there may not not be much separating them from many of their conservative opponents. In fact, this political divide may have shown itself best when during Hillary Clinton's latest run for president, the hashtag, I guess I'm with her, began circulating within radical and progressive communities. The hashtag, which itself was a play on the hashtag, I'm with her, was used to show support for Clinton's candidacy. And, and this new hashtag right displayed an ambivalence and deep dissatisfaction with the overall project of the political left, especially with their espoused values and their ongoing actions regarding the those they purported to care about. Furthermore, it really must be said that the positioning of transgender people as a wedge political issue is a furthering of racism, particularly anti-blackness, um, sexism and misogyny and when we think about misogyny I'm thinking particularly about what Julia Serrano termed trans misogyny or the specific oppression of trans women and trans feminine people. And I say this because we know actually from empirical data that transgender women of color, especially black transgender women, continue to face increased threat, surveillance and policing. We also know that the rash of anti-transgender legislation, most notably the anti-trans bathroom bills proliferating across the country, are primarily concerned with regulating the lives of transgender women and posing transgender women as not women, but as men in dresses who are looking to enter women's spaces to hurt, harm, and defile, quote-unquote, real women." Furthermore, we know that the supposed need for quote-unquote increased safety, and there's that phrasing around safety that's popping back up again, right, Um, is also anchored in the sexist belief that cisgender women are delicate flowers who are in need of protection from a largely cisgender masculinist culture of political will and U.S. society at large. So moreover, as I've stated at the outset of this talk, the continued oppression of transgender people is intimately connected to the ongoing project of colonization as the continued fallacy of there being two and only two genders, which we know is anything but true, right, both empirically and anecdotally, is itself a manifestation of a particular episteme reflective of settler colonial logics. So with this analysis laid out, then, um, I want to turn to... um, to a discussion of how understandings of transgender people as a wedge political issue socially influences K through 12 and post-secondary educational contexts. And so in doing this, it's important to first talk about how the notion of, quote unquote, public education um, is continuing to be gutted as a part, rather, of a neoliberal political strategy. So for example, in the state of Illinois, um, state funding for higher education was actually used as a political tool to not only try to forward policies beneficial to private industry, but also as a way to create further surveillance and oversight into a supposedly liberal bastion of society that continues to overstep its boundaries in terms of the type, direction, and style of education undertaken. In fact... As I often tell whoever will listen, which now includes you all, um, the notion of public higher education has become sadly anachronistic, um, as there is not much that is really public about public higher education. And what I mean by this is that at the current funding rates, federal and state governments are supporting public education at abysmally low levels, right? I I don't need to tell anyone in the state of Illinois this fact, right? Um, while there are certainly less governments can do, and indeed many are attempting to take part in a metaphorical game of funding limbo where states are racing to see who can go the lowest right, and, and leave their institutions of higher education in increasingly more precarious places, The current rates of funding are beyond scary, and they leave educational administrators intensely cautious in regard to forwarding progressive policies that benefit our most vulnerable students, such as transgender youth. And so here is where viewing transgender people as a wedge political issue meets educational contexts. So if we think about K-12 contexts we can think about the continued deferral of some school boards, districts, and states to recognize transgender youth and to provide them access to the spaces and services they need to take part fully in public life. Here I'm talking not just about the utter lack of adequate bathroom and changing facilities but also the lack of queer and trans inclusive curricula as well as the precarity of educators who must think about if and how they can affirm the transgender students alongside whom they learn without fear of retribution or legal ramifications. This, of course, isn't even touching on the extreme precarity of transgender educators ourselves, especially those of us who teach in K through 12 settings. Transgender educators are perhaps best situated to, tra- to support transgender youth in educational spaces. And while this isn't a like for like comparison, right, to be sure there are some transgender educators who may not necessarily be committed to liberatory gender politics or education, I would venture to say that most transgender educators are aware of, attuned to, and particularly well situated to be of support to transgender youth. However, in the absence of federal, state, and or municipal anti-discrimination policies that actively protect transgender educators, the possibilities for trans teachers or of teaching as openly trans becomes increasingly impossible. Moreover, if transgender students do secure employment and are out in the workplace, there's a higher likelihood of their identities and experiences as trans people to be politicized rather than their being recognized as human. So in this sense then, one's transgender experience becomes twisted into a quote-unquote issue rather than a deeply felt existential reality. The disconnecting of one's transness from one's lived reality also then creates division between who we are as a trans people and our being seen as human. For if our transness is positioned as just a quote-unquote issue or can be separated from who we ourselves are and how we experience our lives, then we cease to be seen as fully human on our own terms. And by extension then, we become non-human, right? This am drawing on some work by Alexander Wahaley that it talks about this notion of non-humanness. And and once we're non-human, we can then be treated accordingly by those who would rather we not exist in public spaces such as classrooms and on college campuses. So this is exactly what's at stake when people theorize about necropolitics or the ways in which social and political discourses are wielded to determine not just how people may live but also how people may die. I'm also talking about the ongoing lack of support in terms of financial and human resources for queer and transgender inclusive education throughout K through 12 and post-secondary contexts. For a while, uh, rather, sorry, back up there. Um, for a while there are indeed some post-secondary institutions with extreme emphasis here on the word some, that have LGBT centers, research has shown that these spaces tend to struggle with trans inclusion, are often heavily white spaces, and are vastly understaffed and under-resourced, vastly understaffed and under-resourced. Um, Furthermore, research that I've recently conducted on transgender students' experiences of gender-inclusive housing um, with two of my colleagues, Dr. Rachel Wagner and Dr. Susan Marine, indicates that even the attempt of cisgender administrators to forward trans-inclusive spaces often revolves around their own or cisgender administrators' own feelings of guilt, shame, and fear. In so doing, the work of creating supposedly trans-inclusive spaces is not centered on trans people themselves and is mediated by the mythical fear of lawsuits as well as the fragility and discomfort of cisgender administrators who may have little to no contact with the trans students they purport to care about. Moreover, cisgender administrators' continued investment in in gender binary discourse suggests that they're even thinking about gender-inclusive housing in a very limited area of residential kind of campus spaces, right? Um, That this is used as a way to project their own liberal nature, that there's a commodifying of trans bodies for cisgender administrators benefit, as well as providing a veneer of support that is truly anything but, right? So they're using this language of trans inclusion and forwarding trans inclusive housing, just at this particular area on campus as a way to kind of big themselves up and pat themselves on the back, right? When, when really they're not centering trans people, but they're centering themselves again, right? So because when we think about an era um, in which transgender people are a wedge political issue, to support trans people outright would be to risk not only continued ire from the conservative right, but also the fear of stoking, quote unquote, liberal cisgender people's fears of trans people, right? Which, as I've discussed earlier, um, is steeped in racism, um, most notably anti-blackness, as well as sexism and trans misogyny, right? So we can start to see all these threads kind of coming together. And so um, the question now becomes, what are we to do about the current conditions of education for and alongside transgender youth? How can we dream and envision different realities for those students who are most on the margins? And how, if at all, can we mobilize across populations and spheres of influence to create and sustain the queer worlds that we need? Admittedly, very difficult questions, right? Um, And in fact, the very asking of these questions is really somewhat antithetical to the project of education as it's currently practiced, right? Um, and, And when I say that, I mean that although we talk about education as a public good, the ways in which federal, state, and local publics have moved away from higher education and the ongoing nature of education as compliance with standards that have little or nothing to do with actual student learning, growth, and development suggest anything but that, right? Um, So I'm not talking about how we may think about education, I'm talking about currently how we practice it, right? Um, And in this sense then, to ask questions about the nature and philosophy of education and to attempt to reclaim a vision of educational contexts as full of potential liberation and to use the words of the black feminist educator, Bell Hooks, to recognize education as a practice of freedom is a project that is challenging both on an intellectual and ontological level. And yet, this is also a project that is inherently necessary and rife with possibility, right? It's also something about which there are really no downsides, as as far as I can tell. Um, As our educational historians continue to remind us, educational environments and the knowledges produced and not produced in these environments have always been mediated by interlocking systems of oppression and domination, and in this sense, our dreaming of new liberatory possibilities can only help us realize better educational futures, right? Which are then linked to better socio-political futures, right? So I'm reminded of the words of Asada Shakur, who wrote: It is our duty to fight for our freedom. It is our duty to win. We must love each other and support each other. We have nothing to lose but our chains. It's in this vein, then, that I'd like to turn towards dreaming of new educational environments, ones that are full of increased life chances for those most on the margins. And because educational contexts are intimately tethered to political realities, I'd like also to start my public dreaming by envisioning a gender-expansive politic. So, the first of my dreams is that the political left realizes the importance of fully embracing transgender people beyond a wedge political issue. I also dream of a time when we are not held up as tokens of progress, but are seen as integral in movements toward justice and social transformation. For while I'm deeply moved by the recent election cycle and I'm proud to know that transgender people are finding their ways onto school boards, city councils, and in-state legislatures, we must embrace the reality that structural diversity has not, nor will it ever, lead to the radical redistribution we desperately need, right? Simply put, electing more transgender people will not eradicate transgender oppression. It may make a dent, but it will not actually work as an entire strategy to redistribute resources, energy, and capital toward those who are most on the margins. Speaking of capital, financial and otherwise, I have increasingly been dreaming of a widespread embracing of an epistemology of dependence. Raina Gossett, the black trans archivist and activist, has talked about the central role dependency must take in our society, stating dependency is one of our greatest sources of power. However, in a world gripped by neoliberal ideology, dependency is synonymous with weakness and weakness is synonymous with all that must be avoided. If we shifted to understanding our inherent need of each other, then we wouldn't hesitate to help each other out. In fact, we would even cease to need to help each other in the ways that we've become accustomed to doing so. For example, we wouldn't need to create funding campaigns after natural disasters or in times of personal and community peril because our governments would already understand that all of our liberation is tied together. So if this seems overly utopian on a systemic level, I would ask you why. Why does it seem out of reach? why does it seem outlandish and potentially silly to even utter the dream? I would venture that it seems this way because we have been overly conditioned to not seek that which we need, but to become satisfied with that which we are given. We have also been socialized to believe that that which we do not have is due to our own lack be it our supposed laziness, lack of hard work, or various inabilities, like not being smart enough, industrious enough, or diligent enough, whatever the heck those terms even mean, right? However, all one needs to do is look toward hyper-local contexts to see that we are already recognizing the very utopias that we are often encouraged to dismiss, So for example, in her book, Everyday Utopias, Davina Cooper reminds us of the various localized spaces and times at which we create the worlds we need and deserve. And although these utopias are always bounded by time and place, they provide glimpses of what could be possible were we to depend on each other in radically vulnerable ways, talk honestly about our needs, and recognize the ways in which our lives are all connected to each other. Although we use different language in our work together, the participants alongside whom I wrote my book, Trans in College, were active in creating their own everyday utopias in and across educational spaces. We called these spaces kinship networks, and what they consisted of was places, groups, or people with whom we could be seen and understood on our own terms as transgender people. These places were resting areas for rejuvenation as well as locations where we could scheme and be active in creating better, queerer futures. And perhaps most importantly, they were not restricted to campus. In fact, many participants invested heavily in what we called virtual kinship networks as well as kinship networks that took them off campus. So for example, Reagan would watch YouTube videos of other transgender people talking about their transition processes. Although Reagan said they knew they would never meet these people in person, the connections felt real and important. Additionally, Cade created a queer and trans book club that he hosted at his apartment. In doing so, he created a trans-inclusive space that he needed but didn't find on campus. In this space, while separate from campus, also gave him the strength and fortitude that he needed to keep going back to campus to finish his degree. In this sense, off-campus kinship networks were vital to one's continuation in educational systems that were never built with us as transgender people in mind. We must continue to invest in the development and maintenance of these kinship networks as they are vital to the health and well-being of marginalized communities. Um, There are also strategies for how we can gather, resist, and recuperate in environments framed by systemic oppression. My next dream is that of not waiting for the state to save us. Clearly, as I've discussed at length today, the state was not, nor is it currently, invested in the liberation of marginalized communities, right? Um, I'm convinced that that right now, right, after we saw the Senate vote on health care, what they claim is health care, right, um, and and what they claim are tax bills, right, and all these kinds of things, Um that like we don't maybe need reminding that the state isn't here for us, right? But there it is, the state isn't here for us. Um, and, and so um, there continues, right, to be example after example of the ways in which the state has actually organized against our collective benefit, right? So for example, the expansion and enforcement of hate crimes legislation, right, which I mentioned that we'd come back to, um, has continued to equip and arm the very police state that furthers violence and harm against those who are most vulnerable, particularly, ooh, wow, um, particularly queer and transgender black and brown communities as well as people with disabilities, many of whom are also queer and or trans as well as racially minoritized. As the black transgender activist C.C. McDonald has stated simply, we protect each other. We must not wait for the state to protect us, as the state never has, nor even during the quote unquote, not even during the quote-unquote good old days of liberal political administrations. So not waiting for the state to protect us also translates to not waiting for our school administrations to protect us. And in thinking about what we need to do to protect each other, I've been deeply moved by ways that we can move away from notions of capitalist reproduction and individual wealth. As a result, I've been thinking about not what I personally need, but about what my communities need and how I as a member of my communities can be active in providing that which is needed. So for example, I've been thinking recently about what I and others would be willing to give up in the name of justice and transformation. Would I give up my career for a different form of employment that would bring me closer to my communities? Would I give up money would I give up an amount of my space and or time which I have become accustomed to experiencing? And if so, what would or could my giving up these things look like? What would I and what would you be willing to give up in the name of justice and transformation? Indeed, many of us give up much in the name of of liberation and justice. We give of our time, we give of our money, and some of us give of our bodies. Those of us who have have marginalized identities and experience do this in many respects because we may have no other choice but to give. In other words, our giving of ourselves, time, and money may be our only option in a world in which large, large swaths of people see us as deviant, sick, and unworthy. However, I would also encourage the people in the room with privileged identities and experiences to think about what we would be willing to give up. Not only that, I would encourage us not to frame our giving as being saviors or somehow indicating that we're quote-unquote good people. Instead, I would encourage us to think of this as being, in the words of Marian Edelman Wright, the rent we pay for being. I would also invite you to think about not what you can give up at one time or in one place, but in an ongoing nature that places us with and alongside those who are most vulnerable and recognizes our shared humanity. Finally, I would suggest that we become promiscuous with the knowledges on which we draw from for the work of liberation. So in my own field of higher education, um, we've been far too siloed for far too long. Recognizing this, I've begun to seek different knowledges across which I can make connections and investments. Critical legal studies, disability studies, rhetoric, sociology, art, philosophy, the natural sciences, indigenous studies, All of these fields have something to offer when it comes to understanding the human condition and how we can dig ourselves out from the rubble and ruins in which we're currently residing. However, in suggesting this as a strategy, right, this this promiscuity of knowledge as a strategy, I want to provide an important caution, right? So in, in addition to promoting promiscuity, I want to encourage people to not just pilfer what you need, but to make commitments to various knowledge bases with which you partner, Because for far too long, scholars have cherry-picked quotes, thoughts, ideas, and phrases, using them out of context and with little to no investments in the people and populations who developed them. Need I remind you about the term intersectionality? Right? Therefore, rather than just fooling around with ideas, I invite you all to to do with knowledges what Eli Clare proposed we do with the notion of justice. And so I'm going to read a quote from Eli Clare and substitute his use of the word justice for the word knowledges. So Clare articulated, I want us to cruise knowledges, flirt with them, take them home with us nurture and feed them, even though sometimes they will be demanding and uncomfortable and ask us to change. Clearly, I'm not talking about a simple one-night stand, but a commitment for the long haul. So let's be promiscuous with the knowledges we seek out, but let's do it with a commitment for the long haul. In so doing, we will invariably be reminded of strategies, tools, and ways of thinking and being in the world that do not rely on the same sort of devastating us versus them, highly individualistic politics of disposability that have rooted us in our current predicament. And we must not stop here. In fact, we can't stop here, right? We must keep seeking and keep demanding more of each other and the society in which we live, As Naomi Klein writes about in her latest book, we cannot stop at saying what we are against, but we must strive to come up with alternative solutions in reclaiming the world we need and deserve. And so I want to pause right here and um, just say uh, I understand the reality of semesters, right? We thankfully are coming up on a break in a semester, which means that maybe you get to read something for pleasure, right? Um, I would strongly encourage you, if you have not picked up Naomi Klein's newest book, Noah's Not Enough, would strongly encourage you to do that, right? I guarantee you have a very big, beautiful library here. I'm sure the library has a copy. Um, but she, I think, really wonderfully articulates um, this the space that we need to get to around um, thinking about what our yes is and how we move towards what we want, rather than just saying what we're constantly against, right? Particularly, folks in the academy were very good at critiquing and very good at saying no, 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 no. Um, and I, as well, I'm really complicit in this. Um, I, I need to do a better job of moving towards like what is it that I'm for and what is it that I desire, right? And so I think Naomi Klein helps us get there. Um, so. Um, is, this isn't going to be easy right? And it, and it won't be comfortable just like the questions that, that I asked us to think about. Um, many of us, especially those with privileged identities and positionalities, will have to do some deep reflections about who we are and how we want to exist. So for example, as someone who is white, has a terminal degree, and gets paid more than adequately to do the work that I do, the question that I must ask myself every single day is what am I willing to give up and how am I willing to leverage the privileges that I have all in an effort of being with and alongside others in more equitable, just, and meaningful ways. And although I don't really believe in altruism, I must also ask myself these questions with the knowledge that my liberation is wrapped up in the liberation of everyone around me and that while we may have asymmetrical access to privilege, none of us is free until all of us are free. So here's to a life full of liberation, a world full of potential, and educational spaces that take seriously the charge to engage in teaching and learning as a practice of freedom. Here's to a world where we dream and envision what we need and desire rather than one in which we only say no and react to the devastation that is directly in front of us. And here's to investing in communities that hold us accountable and recognize us, being more, and recognize us as being more important than the simplistic wedge political issues some of us have been positioned as. So, thanks.
1: To those who This is our moment. This is our time. To those who seek peace and security, we support you. Yes, we can. And to all Listen, I don't yeah, care place. how don't tough care. you are, it you will up. beat you to your yeah. knees and keep you there permanently if yeah. you it You, me nobody, is going to hit as hard as life Twitter, Apple Podcasts, the Stitcher Smart Radio app, and Spotify. Yes, we can. Public Access America. History in the making, making history in the making.
0: utopias are always bounded by time and place, they provide glimpses of what could be possible were we to depend on each other in radically vulnerable ways, talk honestly about our needs, and recognize the ways in which our lives are all connected to each other. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems,
1: but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost.